Hi everyone and welcome back to the In Our Backyard podcast with your host Jen Gatler. And in this episode, I talk with Leanna Powell, who's the Director of Development and Communications at Blue Water Baltimore, whose mission is to restore the quality of Baltimore's rivers, streams, and harbor to foster a healthy environment, a strong economy, and thriving communities. For too long, Baltimore's waterways have been plagued by trash, toxins, sewage, and polluted stormwater. These problems do more than harm our environment. They threaten the health and well-being of our residents, communities, and local businesses. They work to change this. With Liana, we talk about the water quality issues Baltimore is facing, toxic pollution, historical aspects of the city that have led to these water issues, educating and listening to citizens, and how to get involved with water issues near you. To contact and connect with Liana and Blue Water Baltimore will be in the show notes below, and I hope you enjoy the episode. So I'm Liana Powell. I'm the Director of Development and Communications here at Blue Water Baltimore. We are a grassroots nonprofit that was formed 11 years ago as a merger between different small neighborhood watershed groups, and they came together to be more effective and to work more regionally. And so currently we work in the entire Baltimore Harbor watershed. If you're familiar with the area that stretches from Northwest Baltimore County all the way basically to the Key Bridge. And so all of the water that flows into the Patapsco River, which is what makes up the Baltimore Harbor, uh, eventually flows into the Chesapeake Bay. And so we're also part of a network of waterkeeper organizations that are protecting the Chesapeake Bay and part of a larger global network called the Waterkeeper Alliance. And that is a group of people who uh, each represent different waterway around the world. So there's over 300 waterkeepers and our Baltimore Harbor waterkeeper is on our staff. Her name is Alice Voltida. Yeah, and so overall, our mission is to protect and restore our watershed and to do it in partnership with communities so that everything that we do is a win-win. We really believe that quality of life and water quality are not mutually exclusive and that people are a really important part of our natural ecosystem and they need to be cared for just like any other species. It's great. And I love that you all work with a lot of different like water groups and Mm -hmm. keepers around the area. Yeah, I mean, we really understand that water knows no political boundaries, right? So Mm -hmm. we work primarily in Baltimore City and Baltimore County. Um, We work across those jurisdictional lines. We not only share a watershed, we also share infrastructure, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a moment. And we also recognize that, you know, we're part of not only this larger Chesapeake Bay restoration effort, but also part of a global movement to connect people back to our most precious resource, which is water. Firmly believe that water is life and you can't have clean drinking water without a clean ecosystem, ultimately. Yeah, and so we really do focus on the the non-drinking water side of the equation. So we focus on what ends up in our waterways and how it gets there and how we can um, improve that relationship. And so the four major threats to water quality that we track here in Baltimore are trash, sewage, stormwater, and toxics. So those are largely industrial pollution. Um, We have interventions with each of those individually, and we also work at a higher policy level to help people understand how much they're connected. Mm -hmm. So for example, we, one of the biggest challenges we have here in Baltimore is that our sewer system is over a hundred years old. And uh, while when it was installed, it was revolutionary because it separated rainwater, stormwater from the sanitary sewer system or what comes out of our homes. And we actually treated our sanitary sewer water instead of just dumping it directly into the nearest stream or river. 
that was called a municipal separate storm sewer system, MS4. And uh, again, it was, it was pretty revolutionary when it was installed, but times have changed. <laughs> and that system has aged. And now what we see is that due to the cracks in the pipes and sort of the increased population in our area, we have an overloaded system. So when it rains really hard, we're not only dealing with stormwater, washing pollutants, trash, toxic contaminants from the streets directly into our streams, which is where those storm drains end up. But those storm drains are also laid in parallel with our sewage system. And so when they overflow, the sewage systems overflow. And sewage can back up into people's homes. Sewage can back up into the streets. So unfortunately, we have what we can refer to as the sewage volcano issue here in Baltimore during heavy rains. And of course, we know in the mid-Atlantic region and in the southeast, um, heavy rains and sort of these torrential events are increasing with climate change. Mm-hmm. And so that's all to say these systems are very interconnected. And so the solutions that we use to address them also have to be pretty comprehensive. Our major programs are direct restoration implementation. That's sort of the thing that people know us best for. We work with neighborhoods and congregations and schools and hospitals to install what we call green stormwater infrastructure. And so these are natural solutions to flooding and stormwater runoff that not only help slow down and clean the stormwater, they also improve quality of life for the neighborhoods where they're installed. So this looks like trees, street trees, um, where we're removing pavement either on a sidewalk or sometimes we're removing a parking lot um, or a larger section of what we call impermeable pavement. And instead we're installing plants and trees that will absorb that water during rain. Mm. And so during a large rainstorm, single rainstorm, a mature oak can actually absorb, so drink up and hold hundred gallons of water. So not only is that water being allowed to filter back into the ground, but it's actually being sequestered by these trees, which then release it as they oxygenate the air. We also install rain gardens and other what we call best management practices for stormwater. So ways to catch stormwater when it runs off of a parking lot or off of a roof in a cistern or a rain garden or a, a bioswale, some kind of bioretention that's going to keep it from running into one of our vulnerable waterways. Another one of our big programs that supports that is that we run a native plants nursery. So we actually have a plant nursery that's open to the public where people can buy plants to install in their own yards. So, you know, if people have flooding or or runoff issues, plants are a really great solution to that. Wow. So does does the flooding of a sewage system, does that happen every time that there's a big storm here in Baltimore? Yes, Mm, it does. Yeah. So we record thousands of sewage backups a year. And unfortunately, a lot of those are happening in people's homes that are not reported. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we found as we've delved into this issue and worked closer and closer with communities on it is a lot of people don't understand this infrastructure system. And so they believe that the sewage backup is their fault mm-hmm. or that it has something to do with them being careless. And it's, it's embarrassing in addition to being dangerous and disgusting. And so what we are trying to do is help people understand that sewage backups, residential sewage backups are by and large have nothing to do with the homeowner. They're a system issue or the renter, which is another big issue that people hesitate to report them because they're afraid of being evicted or afraid of reprisal from their landlord. And so we know that there are many more sewage backups happening than we know about. The city does track sewage overflows that happen in streets and streams. And we also have a pollution reporting hotline that people can use 
during any kind of weather to report something that seems wrong or to report pollution. And so we are trying to do a much better job collaboratively with the city of tracking where these sewage overflows are happening and um, actually shutting off the places where the system was designed to overflow which into mm-hmm. the streams. Mm-hmm. These are called structured outfalls. And that was a, basically a relief valve that was built into the system originally that, you know, it's not the best solution. So sewage is one of the biggest issues that we work on. And that leads me to one of our other sort of biggest program areas, which is water quality monitoring. So we have part of our waterkeeper team, we have uh, scientists who are in our streams and in the harbor on a boat every week, sampling 49 monitoring stations that we maintain all across the watershed. So we sample from the very, very beginning of streams all the way out to the Key Bridge where the harbor enters the larger Patapsco River. And at these sites, we're looking for not only bacteria, which helps us identify sewage overflows, but also things like salinity and conductivity, um, which we see a spike in that when there is snow and there's road salt applied. We test pH, which is part of how we discovered that there was dumping happening at a vinegar plant in Baltimore that was causing a massive fish kill. We test for nitrogen and phosphorus, which can lead to algae blooms. And all of these metrics help us paint a picture of what is happening across the watershed and what is working. Mm -hmm. So like I mentioned, we've been around for about 11 years. And so we now have a decade worth of water quality data to look at. And we can say that in the areas that we have been working the hardest to address sewage, bacteria levels are going down. And at some of our most threatened monitoring sites in that regard, uh, we are seeing improvement. Unfortunately, we're also seeing a trend that indicators of stormwater pollution are going up. And so stormwater management is becoming one of our biggest new focuses, in part because it's also related to sewage overflows, but it's a big threat to quality of life. So flooding is a huge issue for some neighborhoods in Baltimore that don't get a lot of attention. So in Southwest Baltimore, there's a historically black neighborhood and and Baltimore is majority black city. This neighborhood along the Frederick Avenue corridor has been subject to really intense flooding, um, up to eight feet of water in some storms that has devastated small businesses. Um, People have lost homes. It's been really detrimental to this historic community, and it's getting very little press coverage. And unfortunately, because this community is at the end of the Winds Falls Valley, which is one of our sub-watersheds, everything that happens upstream from that, which is primarily higher income neighborhoods, all of that development is continuing to cause flooding and to really threaten this neighborhood that's downstream. And so as we look at water, stormwater management, it's not only an indicator that our waterways are getting healthier, it's also an indicator that our neighborhoods are getting healthier. Yeah. And I was just going to kind of go back to the fact that Baltimore is like an industrial port city. Mm -hmm. So do you all work with or try to talk to the industries who are Mm -hmm. maybe polluting or do you, can you like trace the chemicals back to Mm -hmm. the industry to kind of keep them accountable in some kind of way? Ideally, yes. So there are two kinds of pollution that we look at, and this is very generalized, but point source and non-point source pollution. Mm -hmm. So something like stormwater runoff is non-point source. There's nobody that we can literally point to and say, you did this. Point source pollution, however, is different. And we see this, like I mentioned, with the vinegar factory or with a metal scrap company called Baltimore Scrap that we have been monitoring for many years, where businesses have permits to say, you know, this is how much is an acceptable level of pollution. 
And put together, all of those permits, if they were followed and upheld, would mean an overall improvement gradually in the quality of our water. But it's not uncommon for businesses either unintentionally, because they don't know, or intentionally to violate those pollution permits. And so one of the things that we do through water quality monitoring and our pollution enforcement hotline is to identify when that's happening. And when it's happening, we use our water quality data to build a case. And we generally first alert the enforcement authority that's in charge of making sure it stops. So usually that's the Maryland Department of the Environment. Sometimes we get the Environmental Protection Agency involved. Um, they do have an environmental crimes unit that investigates. And in the situation where action either isn't taken or isn't taken fast enough, we take legal action. And so we can sue the polluter, we can sue the Maryland Department of the Environment, or the Clean Water Act, which is a really important piece of legislation. And it has what's called the citizen suit provision, which gives everyone the right to sue a polluter that's impacting a shared waterway. So essentially it gives everyone the right to clean water and the right to take action if someone threatens that, right? And because we are a membership organization, so any donor to Blue Water Baltimore of any amount is a member, we can sue on their behalf. So we can say, we're here representing um, members X, Y, and Z who've been negatively impacted by this pollution. We need you to take immediate action and enforce penalties on the people who are continuing to pollute. And so while Baltimore's legacy as an industrial import city is changing really rapidly, we are monitoring sites like Sparrows Point and Locust Point that have historically been part of the steel import and production industry. A lot of toxic chemicals have come out of that process. And for the most part, they've settled into the sediment at the bottom of the harbor. And so we pay really close attention to actions like dredging, which happen pretty frequently to clear waterways and making sure that that contaminated sediment is not making it back into the water or into areas where people fish or into the air. Yeah, that's so interesting. And then going back to also, since Baltimore is majority Black city and Mm -hmm. there are still neighborhoods like lower income neighborhoods that get Mm -hmm. overlooked. So how do you all work with them on water issues? I will say this is something that we are getting better at. Um, Mm -hmm. So we have been actively for the last few years talking about race and economic equity in our work. Um, And it it might seem counterintuitive at first that an environmental group would be thinking about anti-racism, but it has played such an important history in shaping the city that we have now. So Baltimore was one of the first cities in the world to enact redlining, right, which segregated people by race into specific neighborhoods and kept the property values of those neighborhoods low. And so we can't ignore that history when we look at things like the map of where tree canopy is in our city or the map of health outcomes like hypertension. And because those things are directly related to environmental concerns. So there's lots of research about the benefit of trees. For example, they have been shown to reduce crime rates, to improve mental health, to improve life expectancy, to improve neonatal health. Just having trees to look at is valuable for people. And so when we work with neighborhoods that have been marginalized, that include people of color, low-income people, immigrants, it's really important for us We've, we've learned, right, to listen and not just to show up and say, hey, this is good for you. We're going to do it. Mm-hmm. But to really let people make, make their own choices about what's a priority for their neighborhood. And so what we've encountered often is that when we go to plant trees in a historically Black or historically low-income neighborhood, people are resistant. They don't want trees. And a lot of it is because of the fear of gentrification, right? That this is what rich neighborhoods and they don't want to be priced out. 
Sometimes we hear about concerns about maintenance, right? Like who's going to take care of this tree that you're putting in front of my house, right? I didn't ask for this. And a lot of it is thanks to a legacy of white-led nonprofits showing up, we call it parachuting, into a Black neighborhood, providing a solution, and then leaving without ever listening to whether that solution was a priority for people. Mm-hmm. And so that's where this intersection of quality of life and water quality comes in. We want to make sure that we are doing the work to get to know people before we ever suggest a change to their home. We want to listen to what is happening in their life, what their concerns are, whether it's crime or education or nutrition or access to transportation, right? And as we work to improve the stormwater controls or the water quality in their neighborhood, we also have to be attentive to the fact that we might not be solving their primary concern, right? And so how are we using our leverage, our connections, our resources as an organization to care for that community as well? It might not be our mission, but we also can't ignore it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's also interconnected. So definitely mm-hmm. address it as well. And so education really is, as you were talking about, like one of the key ways for our waters to be less polluted and let people know the importance of this resource. So could you tell me about some of the educational programs that you all work on? Yeah, absolutely. So we have for a long time worked with children and youth through our public schools, through public libraries to help really build this future generation of environmental advocates Mm -hmm. um, and to to help children reconnect with the natural environment and understand that the parks, the sidewalks, the streams belong to them. In addition, we've really been focusing recently on adult education and on making sure that we are doing targeted skill building and awareness for specific interventions. And so we recognize, for example, that we not only can't be everywhere, but we don't need to be, right? If we can teach people how to adopt the storm drains in their neighborhood and keep them clean and decorated, if we can teach them how to communicate with their neighbors about trash problems, if we can teach them how to pollute, how to report pollution, then we are just expanding our reach. We're building this movement and we are really reducing the need for us to be the solution. Mm-hmm. And that's been our goal. And so those are all workshops that we have, right? We have a pollution 101 training that helps people understand what is and isn't pollution, how to report it, what happens then, you know, what all the mechanisms are for them to protect their rights. We have a storm drain adoption workshop um, that teaches people sort of, you know, what is that drain? Where does the water go? What happens when it gets clogged? How to clean it safely? How to um, decorate it with murals and signage and informational art basically to help people understand that it's there's no filter right Mm -hmm. that anything that goes into that storm drain goes directly into our streams we also help people with consultations to design pollinator gardens to renovate their property to be more stormwater friendly so we have a stormwater friendly gardening workshop uh, that we're developing now and and really everything that we do is is about empowering people to take up the mantle of environmental warriors, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is about addressing these problems at the source, and that is done through policy. And so the other big part of education that we do is helping people understand what policy options there are and advocating for them. So in the Baltimore City Council right now, for example, there's a package of bills that we are working on building support for that would really be a first step for the city towards addressing climate resiliency and recognizing that our future is also a climate future Mm. and that, you know, the solutions may be overdue, but 
there's no better time to start than now. And so we do a lot of political education with people to understand how to submit testimony and who their council people are and how to get involved in getting a bill like that passed. Yeah. Wow. So yeah, I was going to, I was curious since I am new to Baltimore, what has the history of like the local government been on environmental issues? And then I guess like the city as a whole, is it like, do people care? I guess is my question. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Or is it something that's just not a priority? I don't know. I don't think it's that people don't care. Um, Honestly, we have really, really strong relationships with individual folks at the city. Mm -hmm. Director Jason Mitchell, who's the head of the Department of Public Works, is a fantastic guy. Mm -hmm. And his department is underfunded. You know, the same thing with the Office of Sustainability. I think thinking about these issues as environmental issues is the wrong way to go about it Mm -hmm. because they're never going to be as high a priority as gun violence or primary education or healthcare, right? Those are things that are urgent, pressing quality of life issues. And at the same time, if we don't invest in these long-term solutions and the underlying infrastructure, they're going to become health issues. They're going to become educational issues. You know, students with asthma who miss school are not going to get a good education, right? Mm -hmm. Um, People who have extremely hot neighborhoods in the summer are going to have higher risk of diabetes and hypertension. And so... I think our challenge is really helping our elected officials and our voters recognize that this term solution, nothing that we are doing is going to be cheap or easy, but it is so worth it in the long run and even in the short run. So one of the things we're doing is wanting to bring people out more to places where we've done these green stormwater projects and let them see how beautiful they are and what it sounds like when there are birds in your neighborhood because there are trees, right? And so part of it is really just helping people raise their eyes from the immediacy of the crisis at hand and really build a more audacious vision for the future and recognize that it's possible. I love that. And yeah, definitely just been long-term solutions and it's never a quick fix. So that's great. So is there anything that we missed that you would like to discuss or think that is important to say? I would just say to any listeners anywhere, honestly, there is probably a waterkeeper near you. So if you're in the Baltimore region, absolutely get in touch with us. We, like I said, are building a movement with thousands of people and we'd love to have you volunteer with us or sign a petition or sign up to testify or bring us in to do some education with the community. And if you're lucky enough to have a waterkeeper protecting a waterway near you, they probably want to do the same thing. So you can find your local waterkeeper at waterkeeper.org. And I, yeah, just encourage you to reach out and get your community involved as well. Yeah, definitely. And then just my last question is how can people contact or connect with you or, you know, Blue Water Baltimore if they want to get involved? Absolutely. So we have a pretty strong presence online. It is a pandemic. (laughs) You can find us at bluewaterbaltimore.org and our staff list is there. I welcome any emails or calls. And you can also find us on social media. Our handle is at Blue Water Be More, pretty much everywhere. And yeah, follow us to get more information about how to get involved. Thank you so much, Leanna, for talking with me. There are links to everything we discussed below. And if you want to get involved with a local waterkeeper, I have the website link to get involved. Thanks for listening and tune in in two weeks for a new episode.